So how's everybody doing? I'm happy to be here. I always tell my wife, if I just wake up in the morning, I'm happy and I consider it a good day. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to welcome everybody here, especially our guest. Um, my wife has a friend here named Kim. I'd like to especially welcome Kim today. And if we have any other guests, pardon? No, I'm doing this without PowerPoint today. So I hope you're happy to be here. So I'm going to get right to it. The date, January 28, 1986. Some of you may remember that day. I certainly do. The Space Shuttle Challenger was on the pad waiting to be launched. And the seven-member crew included a teacher named Krista McAuliffe. She was to be the first civilian to reach outer space. And of course, if you remember that, there had been several delays and NASA was feeling the pressure from the media. And the reason for that was because they had promised that the shuttle would launch about 24 times a year, twice a month. And up until that time, they had only achieved 10 launches. The night before the scheduled liftoff, engineers at a company called Morton Thiokol, who were the makers of the solid rocket boosters, which I will refer to them as SRBs, were concerned about how cold the weather had gotten in Florida. And they had recommended not to launch because they had some serious concerns about something called O-rings. The SRBs had been made in sections in order to ship them to uh, Florida. And those O-rings, they were concerned, would not seal the gaps under the temperatures that they were going to be experienced. And the rocket would flex when it would um, lift off. And of course, during ascent. Now, they held a special meeting the night before the launch. And they talked about this at great length, but NASA pressured Morton Thiokol to change their recommendation. And the next morning, despite having ice on the pad and all over the shuttle, from temperatures that had dropped to 18 degrees Fahrenheit the night before, they went ahead anyway. This was still against the recommendation of the engineers. When the countdown reached zero, the shuttle leaped off of the pad and it appeared to be a perfect liftoff. The Morton Thiokol engineers were relieved and one of them was heard to say, we just dodged a bullet because they thought that the shuttle was going to explode right there on the pad. What they could not see was there was a big black puff of smoke near the bottom of one of the solid rocker boosters, which indicated a burn through of both the primary and the secondary O-rings. And as the shuttle gained speed and altitude, they would throttle the engines back, the main engines back, in order to deal with the loads that were on the shuttle at that time. As they rapidly ascended, a plume of exhaust gases was progressively burning through the SRBs. A little over 70 seconds into the flight, ground controllers instructed Challenger to go at throttle up, which meant to increase the orbiter engines to full power. By now, the fire escaping near the base of the SRBs had burned through a strut which held the SRB to that big orange main fuel tank. They called it the external fuel tank. When the SRB broke loose, it curved into the external fuel tank and ruptured the liquid oxygen tank, which was up at the top of that external tank. 
Within seconds, the bottom of the main fuel tank fell off and released liquid hydrogen. Michael Smith, who was the pilot, was monitoring the instruments and noticed something was terribly wrong and just had enough time to broadcast on the radio, uh-oh, just before the shuttle broke up and all seven astronauts plummeted over eight miles back to Earth and hit the ocean at 200 miles per hour. That was uh-oh moment number one. Now I'd like you to turn back to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. And it probably was a familiar story to most of you. And um, it's the parable of the wise and the foolish versions. And if you don't quite understand the point here, the point was to help people to get ready for the second coming of Jesus. And in verse 1 it says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. In some uh, versions it might say maidens, but they represent everybody that professes the pure faith of Jesus. And we know that women are used to symbolize God's people or God's church. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2, it says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. And 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, I am, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And if you uh, remember coming to our last evangelistic series, we talked about two women in Revelation, which represented the true church and the apostate church. So I think there's many different things in the Bible that would support um, that these virgins represent God's people. Now it says that five of them were foolish and five of them were wise in verse 2. So there's obviously a difference within this group. And verses 3 and 4 explain the difference before them. And 3 says, those were, who were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the, the wise, in verse 4, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So both groups, in other words, both groups of people who claim to have God's blessing, if you will, or God's followers, they both have lamps, but only five had enough oil. And it says that the other five took no oil with them. And basically what this is kind of alluding to is that do you have enough to last for the period of time until the bridegroom comes? Now, lamps represent the word of God. And there are a number of texts that directly tell you this or indirectly tell you. For instance, Psalms 119.105, I'm sure many of you could probably just recite this. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then there are a couple of texts in John, John 1, 9, says that was the true life, talking about Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. John 9, 5 says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the days of the old days when they had these lamps, they would have a clay container and a wick, and there would be oil in that lamp. The oil was the fuel 
and then of course they would light the wick to provide the light. Now, so the light represents the word of God, as we said, thy word is lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, while the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And some of the women were prepared. They, were, they had a relationship with Christ. Their association with the Holy Spirit was something that lasted even through delay, whereas the others were not prepared. And that will come back in a little bit. In Revelation 4-5 it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. So, of course, in those lamps is what? Oil. Also, Zechariah 4-2-6 has some uh, information. It's not as direct as some of the other texts, but it's a little bit long for me to read, so I'm just going to pass on that one right now. Now, we know in verse 5 what was going on with the bridegroom. That's a question. He delayed. Some versions may say he tarried. But while he delayed, what were the virgins doing? They were sleeping. So that delay was, and the delay of waiting for Christ to come back today is a testing time. But what happened? They fell asleep waiting. Both groups, the ones with extra oil and the ones with not enough oil. And this is really telling us the spiritual condition of the church today. We are in the era of which of the seven churches? Laodicea. And that church was known because of what? It was lukewarm. In other words, it, it's fallen asleep. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is doing nothing. It's talking about the church worldwide. And you can read about that in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. So they fell asleep waiting for Jesus. How many of you are tired of waiting for Jesus to come back? All the rest of you are happy that he hasn't come back? I mean, I'm, I want him to come back. Seriously. I want him to come back in my lifetime. And we kind of fall asleep. Uh, I remember doing a survey for the Sabbath school. And one of the things I asked was, were you um, waiting for Jesus to come back? Do you want him to come back in your lifetime? I actually had somebody say, I hope not. So I guess they're kind of happy with this world. Or maybe they just felt they weren't prepared. I don't know which one it is because I don't want to speak for them. But I would say, I hope so. Because I don't know about you, we have it pretty good where we are. But that's not always going to be the case. But a lot of places in the world, um, what they're going to eat is a major issue if they're going to eat at all. Or they might wake up, and I woke up this morning in my prayers, and I said, Lord, thank you that I did not wake up to gunfire. Because in certain places, war just is continuing all the time. But we're not going to digress too much on that. So in verse 6 it says, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Now, the midnight here that they're talking about isn't necessarily a chronological time. But as I was reading in the commentary, they were saying that midnight represents great spiritual darkness in the last days, just before Jesus comes. And in the book of the Great Controversy, chapter 40, it says, It is at midnight 
that God manifests his power for the deliverance of his people. So why does Jesus have to come back at that point? What's about to happen to his people? Anybody read the book? Pardon? Yeah, the death decree has been passed, and um, people have been given the not responsibility, um, permission to kill God's people. And God's people are out in the mountains and in the cages and wherever they may be, and it's, it's real dark time for them. So that's why it says it is at midnight when they are at their toughest trial that Jesus manifests his power to deliver his people. Then it says, then all of the virgins awoke at the announcement that the bridegroom was coming. He wasn't there yet, but he was coming. And they trimmed their lamps. So remember we said that they were using oil lamps back in those days. Does anybody know why they trim lamps? No, that's right. Because an old lamp would build carbon up and the light would start to go down. And so what they would do is they would cut the wick off straight across to a nice clean portion and the lamp would burn brighter and a clean burn. And so they were all trying to get prepared and that indicates that those lamps had gone unattended for some time and they were either burning low or they were starting to go out. And here they're facing the soon arrival of the bridegroom or the soon coming of Jesus. Now the prepared virgins, when they trimmed their lamps, their light was reignited. They were spiritually prepared. But in verse 8, it tells us, the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. What were they essentially asking from a, a spiritual standpoint? They're, they're unprepared. And they weren't, import, uh, they weren't prepared to endure until the end. There was a delay, and they did not have enough fuel or enough of the Holy Spirit uh, to endure to the end. But the wise told them, no, lest we should not have enough for you and us, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. The point here is, one person cannot prepare for another. Everybody has to prepare for themselves. A Christ-like character is not transferable like a ticket. So, while they went to buy, and it doesn't say that they were able to get any, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, and then what happened? In verse 10, the door was shut. And so, when they went out to buy, to try to prepare for the return, it was a wasted effort. It was too late. The door was shut. What does that mean? That's right. They could not come in. Their probation had closed for them. And that's where Revelation 22.11 comes in. Does anybody know what that is? He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. You remember that? He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And what's the last one? He that is holy, let him be holy still. This is also synonymous with Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where Christ or Michael stands up. And remember what Christ is doing right now? He's in the most holy place, and what's taking place? Judgment of the world. So at some time, 
He's going to stand up. It's going to be over. He'll make that pronouncement from Revelation 22:11, and the door will be shut. Now, <clears throat> the um, it says the parable doesn't say that the foolish virgins were able to acquire more oil, because by that time, the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn. Now, what am I saying here? As we get to the end of time, there's going to be a point in time where God will withdraw his spirit after everybody has had ample time to make their decision. And the Bible brings this up when it talks about in Genesis 6.3, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. Psalms 103.9 says, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. There is a point where once people's characters are set, you will not have the ability to change because the Holy Spirit will no longer be pleading with you. And if you read in Revelation how all these things happen in terms of the um, plagues and they say they don't repent, they don't repent, they can't because the Holy Spirit's been withdrawn from them. It will not be withdrawn from God's people though. Then verse 11 says, afterwards or later, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. In other words, the door was shut as we said before. They asked for admittance. They wanted to claim the rewards of being associated or followers of the bridegroom. But what did the bridegroom say in verse 12? He says, I do not know you. They were welcome to come in as long as the door was open. And they had to be ready. But now it was too late forever. Sort of like when the door to the ark was closed. Even though it didn't rain for another seven days, everybody inside was safe. They were righteous and holy. Everybody that was outside was lost. They were not going to be saved. So then it goes on to say in verse 13, the last verse. Uh, oh, before I want to say, um, it was too late for them. This was their uh-oh moment when they realized that they were shut out. And it's going to be an uh-oh moment for people too when they find out that probation is closed. Now, we don't know when probation will close, but we, know, we will know when it has closed. How do we know that? When the plagues start falling, we will know that probation is closed by then. By then, it will be people's uh-oh moment. They, they may still not realize it, though. So the last um, verse says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. Now, watch is translated uh, from one of two Greek words, and I'm not going to try to read them because I'm, I just don't know Greek. But they have similar meanings. They mean to stay awake or to be sleepless, and it also means to be vigilant, on guard, fully awake, aware, alert, and intently focused. So if we want to prepare for Jesus to come back, we need to be intently focused, and I'll explain what we have to do in a bit. So <clears throat> I hope you can see that the Holy Spirit has a very important role in the process of preparing for Jesus to come back. It's important for our salvation. Now, 
Jesus rejected the foolish virgins because they were claiming to be his followers, but they were not. They did not have that extra oil they needed to get them through that delay. So how do we get this extra oil so that we won't find ourselves in the same position? Right now, we're going through a process called, starts with an S, sanctification. Sanctification is where we develop a Christ-like character. And the time to do that is now. And we have a Sabbath afternoon study. And it's been going on since 1999. I don't know how many people realize that. And we just finished a book. It was called Preparation for the Final Crisis. And in that study, we've studied Revelation and Daniel and Acts and various books, John, uh, a number of things. But this time, we studied this book. And this is the second time we studied it. We started the book in March of 2018. We just finished it about three weeks ago, if I remember correctly. So we really studied this book. And in that book, they talk about how to prepare for Jesus' coming, how to develop that Christ-like character. Now, I like to give quizzes. <laughs> this is going to be a spiritual quiz, but it's the kind of quiz where you grade yourself, and it's between yourself and God. You're not going to discuss your answers with your neighbor or any of those things. But I'm going to tell you five things that we were studying from this particular book, and they go along with things that uh, the Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible says on how to prepare for um, the second coming of Christ and to have that extra oil you're going to need to get through the times that are coming. Because we're really comfortable right now, but I guarantee you, if you've ever read The Great Controversy, the future is not going to be easy. But at the same time, I don't want you to be scared. Because with God on our side, what do we have to worry about? Amen. Nothing. The first one is Bible study and studying the counsels of the spirit of prophecy. And one of the things that's going on in our church, I like to keep up with what's going on in the church, is many people are rejecting the spirit of prophecy. That means personal Bible study, group Bible study, family worship time, Sabbath school. And I say that for a reason. I took on the job to be Sabbath school superintendent this year. And um, last week, for instance, when Sabbath school started, because I shoot to start on time, we had eight people. Eight. Then by the time we were about to study the lesson, we had 24. Now, today it was 15. That's like double. And I felt really good about that. But what I've been trying to do in Sabbath school in the programs that I do, because we do something on um, personal ministries and um, Jess does that one once a week, and then I do some, and Stacy does some. And one of the things I talked about was the latter rain. The title was The Latter Rain. When it falls, will you get wet? Because Ellen White talks about when the latter rain falls, the people that are not prepared to receive it are going to be lost, and that the latter rain will be falling all around them, and they won't even realize it. So we need to know what we need to do to be ready. Otherwise, we won't get wet by the latter rain. Another thing I did was, how do you know if you're going to be shaken out or not? Have you ever heard of the shaking? Yes. 
Well, there's going to be a, a mass exodus out of the church as we get to the end times and a mass exodus in. And I did a program on how to tell if you're going to be one of the ones that goes out. And then another one I did was on why the delay. Why is Jesus delayed? And then I had a couple of programs on what's going on in prophecy. One was called the Papacy, New Humanism and Education. And another one was on just what the papacy is doing behind the scenes right now. And if you keep up with those things and compare them to what Ellen White said would happen way back in the 1800s, she's right on point. And I was not born into this church. I came from a Mennonite background, became a Catholic when I married, and then that was that's a story all by itself. But um, and then when I received one of those brochures that people say don't work very well, I came and studied my way into this church. Um, also, I did some things on evangelism. It was called What Would You Do? In other words, it was trying to get people to see if there were various dangerous situations that people faced, how would you, would you do something about it? And then I pointed out how uh, important it is for us to spread the gospel. And you parents of small children, there aren't a lot here today, but I wanted to point this out. Um, it's hard to get people to take positions down in the Sabbath school departments. They're asked to take a, a, make a two-year commitment. And it's important that you understand that if you don't bring your children to Sabbath school, you are telling them something. You are telling them it's not important. And when they get older, there's a real good chance they're going to take the same attitude. This Sabbath school is just one example of things that we can learn that will help us to fill our lamps with that extra oil. So I want to encourage people to think about these different things. A second one is communication with God through fervent prayer. And I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody because I don't want you to think that I'm together. Talk to my wife, she will tell you. I'm less than a perfect person. So notice it said fervent prayer, not just prayer. Fervent means committed, dedicated, with passionate intensity. <sighs> the reason I took that breath, <clears throat> when I retire, there were big changes in my life. I'm sorry I'm kind of losing it right now, but I got very sick. And I got sick to where I could not even breathe. And I had to take certain medicines. And if you know me, I have sleep apnea, so you have to wear a CPAP at night, otherwise I can't sleep either. I could not use that. And I'll tell you, I understood a couple of things. One, why governments use sleep deprivation as a torture. Because it is torture after about a week of no sleep. Your mind really goes crazy. <clears throat> Give me a minute here. <clears throat> that sickness 
has still had an effect on me to today. I won't go into the details, <clears throat> but I was praying fervently. I walked the floor. I walked up and down the halls praying just to be able to breathe and to be able to sleep, which were, which were simple things that we don't even think about. I learned what fervent prayer was that night. I hope none of you ever have to go through something like that in order to understand what that means. I don't, I've tried to explain it to my wife. I don't think she fully understands. But prayer has to be serious. We just don't realize what's at stake. The third thing is, and it might be a little tough, is confession of our sins. We have to be willing to ask God to show us where we have fallen short and to be serious about confessing and being sorry. Now, you might commit a sin and not feel sorry about it because there's times that, you know, I did something and I said, I don't feel sorry about it. I didn't feel bad about it at all. But I knew I needed to confess that sin. And luckily, God was merciful enough to let me live long enough to do it. And... Uh, I guess you were right. Yes, I did need that tissue. <laughs> she said, would you like a tissue? I said, no, I don't need a tissue. I'll be fine. Okay. If you have one, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> anyway, um, not only that, that as we, we confess our sins, thank you very much. Man, you're right on the ball. That's a head deacon, if not to tell you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Richard. Going on. We need to gain the victory over these weaknesses. Now, you might find yourself continually falling, but you have a choice. When you fall, you can stay down or you can get up. I prefer to get up. And one of the things I tell, I say to the Lord when I'm praying is, I will not give up. And we also need, in order to gain those victories, one of the things we have to do, which is number four, is to surrender to God's will. Now, that's tough for me. I am one of these people that say, okay, you know, I'm going to make the decisions because that determines what I'm going to do. And if I'm going to go one way or another, I'm going to be totally responsible. I take responsibility for what I do. And to surrender, you put God in the driver's seat. And it's something that you just can't say, oh, I surrender, and then go on about your business. It's something you have to do daily. Paul said, I die daily, because he knew that we like to control our own lives. But if we really want to do what God wants us to do, we have to wake up and say, what is your plan for me today? Now, I might not want to do it, but you can give me the strength to do it. And then number five is to be a diligent worker for God. In other words, that's an action right there. Diligent means hard working. And I hate to say this, but I've heard people tell me when I've asked them to do something, oh, I can't do that. You can do anything if God is on your side. You, I don't remember what this text is. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you believe it or not? I mean, if you would have known me as a young person, 
you would have said, no, I never get up in front of people and, and speak publicly at all. I mean, my bowels would roll and I'd want to throw up if I had to do uh, uh, you know, a book report in school. I'd rather die. <laughs> Seriously. I didn't want to do that. But I knew that God gave me certain talents and he says, you want me to do this? Okay, I go do it. I don't know how. I mean, I would say yes to things that I had no idea how I was going to do it. I would just say, yes, I'll do that. And so I would like to encourage people that are afraid to do things, don't be. There's always going to be somebody to help you, but the ultimate helper is God. He can help you do anything. So we need to be a diligent worker. And Matthew 7.20 says, therefore by their fruits you shall know them. And really, you should read 15 through 20. And James 2.17 says, Thus also faith by itself, if, not, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. We have to do something. People in the world are dying. There are easy things you can do. Just like Jess has a practice of leaving a glow at every restaurant that we go to. And she'll tell the server, I have a message for you. She's planting a seed. Those are easy things that you can do. You may never see the harvest until that day when somebody comes up to you and say, you know that little glow that you left on the table? I read that glow and it started my journey. But you may not know it now. So how did you do in terms of how prepared are you? How much oil do you have? Just ask yourself that, don't tell anybody else. It's between you and Jesus. But you know, this is the time to prepare. And I want to close with two short stories. And they're about how quickly life can change. The first one is, I was bringing, um, I was picking up Laura and one of her friends from GLAS one day. And I was traveling down Mount Hope, heading east. And it was kind of snowy like a day like today. And this person wanted to pull into the doctor's office. They were in the far right lane going west. They turned in front of everybody, including me, and all I could do was go to the right to try to get around them. Now, had I hit that car, I might have severely injured or killed the passenger. But I got around the front of the car, and the, now I'm on this icy grass, and there's a telephone pole right in front of me. I told the kids, in my Star Trek lingo, brace for impact. And we hit that tree. The next thing I knew, somebody was knocking on the window and asking if I was all right. Now, I have no idea how long it took for them to get out of their car to come to that window. All I know is boom, knock. In between, I have no idea how, what had happened. Had I been going, say, 70 or 80 miles an hour, that's just how quickly I would have died. So you can be here doing something normal one minute and gone the next. Some of you might remember Nancy O'Neill. Nancy O'Neill was coming to church with her granddaughter. Lost control of the car on the, on the road. Hit something. I don't know if it was a tree or what. No more Nancy O'Neill or her granddaughter. Happened just that fast. Coming to church. Another example uh, was on Thanksgiving. Uh, 2011, 
and most of the family was there except I think my sister. And uh, usually after the meal, we would, the guys would retire into the den and watch the lions lose. That's <laughs> <laughs> about the way well, it goes too. Anyway, um, so my brother and I were starting to talk about different things and we talked about politics and different stuff like that. And uh, we've talked about religion over time, but he's pretty much, uh, was pretty much an atheist, although he was raised in the church. And um, I found it interesting that we didn't have any arguments over politics because he's a little bit on the left and I'm more toward the right. So we parted without having to say sorry about anything. And then the next day I was way in the back of our property doing some gardening and Daniel came out. Daniel's my son-in-law, uh, husband of my daughter Mary, uh, Mary Laura. <laughs> That's a senior moment there, folks. But anyway, um, Daniel came walking out and I thought that was kind of strange. And then he said, hey, you need to call home. And I said, why? Just, just tell me what's going on. He said, no, you need to call home. So after we went back and forth on that for a few minutes, I called home. And my brother, who was 59 at the time, had had a massive heart attack that night, never woke up. Now, you might think this happens to somebody else, but it can happen to you. You might not make it home today. Now is the time to prepare. Jesus is coming back. His promises are sure. But of course, when you take your last breath, he's coming back right then. You'll either be awakening in the first resurrection, yay, or the second, uh-oh. And I hope none of you have that uh-oh moment. You know how to prepare? Make it a priority. We're talking, this is serious times. Now, we've said that Jesus is coming soon. We don't know when. But I've gotten to the point now, I know I'm 66 now. I'm not going to live to be 100, guaranteed. So 66 plus, that would be 34 years. For me, Jesus will be back within 34 years, for sure. Some of you might be a little sooner. For Zoe, it could have been not too long ago. We all know about Zoe's accident, and I'm glad that she made it. The Lord protected her. He has more for her to do yet. So take the time. This isn't just a feel-good sermon. It's to wake us up, to be ready. Thank you.